What would happen if a killer asteroid were found on a direct collision course with Earth? How would governments respond? Are there official plans in place, and would they even let you know? Do we have the technology to knock one out of the sky or to destroy an asteroid? On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Andy Rivkin, planetary astronomer at John Hopkins University and a lead investigator on NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, the world's first ever planetary defense mission. We discussed the plan to crash a satellite into the asteroid Dimorphos at 7 kilometers a second. The DART mission is, of course, just a test. Dimorphos isn't a threat to Earth, but this is a dress rehearsal that will teach us about impact dynamics in case we ever have to do the real thing. In this conversation, we cover the details of the mission and whether the satellite will plow straight through the asteroid or splatter. We also discuss the physics of making sure that asteroids don't impact Earth, and Andy will give a more realistic picture of how likely it is that we'll ever need this technology in our own lifetimes. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. Let's say just hypothetical situation. There was an asteroid 200 meters across screaming in towards us from interstellar space, or maybe it's got a long period, so we didn't know about it. Is there an official uh, program in place or is there some strategy in place uh, internationally to deal with that sort of a situation or we're not at that point yet? Uh, so there's lots lots to that. Um, interstellar space, you know, the things like Oumuamua or Comet Borisov, right? They, they come in very, very fast. We're unlikely to um, have too much warning. So a lot... I think a lot of the scenarios that people think about uh, tend to focus on things that that give us somewhat more morning time. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, you know the other the other part of the the question there, um, there are absolutely international groups that are that are uh, set up under the auspices of the United Nations. Um, there's uh, kind of separate but related groups that deal with. Um, sharing data um, and, uh, you know, kind of making making the calculations um, and then a different group, again, related that sort of figures things out like, okay, at, at what threshold do we actually do something? You know, if mm -hmm. you have a 5% chance that something so-and-so big is going to, is maybe going to hit us on such a time frame, then we take this action. And if it, it goes from 5% to 20%, then it becomes another action. And so there, there are um, these groups in place, um, international groups in place to coordinate things. But with, um, let's say, for example, Oumuamua was going to hit Earth. We had what, how many days warning did we have there? <laughs> well, again, we didn't find out until it was past us. So these things are moving. Um, moving uh the worst case scenario uh that people talk about at least before we found any interstellar objects was you can have you know a retrograde comet you know that was coming in at i think it's something like 72 kilometers an hour uh kilometers a second 72 kilometers a second um and a lot of the things, not counting then the, the escape speed of the Earth, that would add a little bit more uh, on the way in. So usually when we think about things, we think about things coming in at, you know, a, a tenth of that or, or less. Um, so um, if, to go, I guess to get to get at this another direction, this was not Oumuamua, this was something much, much smaller and that really didn't have a problem. Um, 
there was an object discovered uh, in 2008 uh, called 2008 TC3, and it was um, determined to be on an impact trajectory with Earth. Uh, and it was, um, you know, kind of the size of the table that I'm sitting at that you can't see. It's two, two meters in size. Um, so they didn't spot it very far in advance. They, they discovered it kind of 48 hours ahead of the impact. Uh, we knew that an impact with a two meter object was going to have zero effect on the earth. It was going to, you know, not make it through the atmosphere intact. Um, but they, you know, the, the telescopes that found it and the people that did the orbit calculations um, followed the protocol. The protocol is, you know, they told the Minor Planet Center, the Minor Planet Center, you know, et cetera. I don't think there was a, the Planetary Defense Coordination Office didn't exist at the time. But, you know, the, the folks at the JPL, Near Earth Object Office, um, informed the proper authorities. And I guess the proper authorities, um, they determined that, uh, the, the JPL folks and the other folks who, who determined the orbit determined that it was going to hit the earth near the border between Egypt and Sudan. Um, and so the proper authorities told the governments of Egypt and Sudan, you know, hey, there's going to be a fireball, an impact. Uh, no one's in danger. You know, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um there, I don't think there's the population density is terribly high, if if anything at all out there. Um, so that that got exercised. There are, if you if you you know go look on the internet for 2008 TC3 and impact, there was a weather satellite that caught um, caught the the impact. So you can see a little a little flash in the right place. And um, not long after that, a team um, was organized by. Um, Peter Jeniskins of NASA Ames to go to that spot and pick up the meteorites. So um, we have, you know, that's that's one of the few things that um, maybe the only one that was spotted from being in space. Data was taken of it in space. The impact was predicted. They went and picked up the pieces. So um, the the process worked. Uh, obviously, in, in case of a real emergency, we would want much more than 48 hours uh, warning. But um, in principle, uh, you know, if that was going to hit uh, instead of the Egypt-Sudan border, if it was going to hit Cairo, um, yeah. they would have said, by the way, uh, you know, don't here's this thing's going to happen. Don't freak out. We don't think it's going to be a big deal, but there might be a, you know, a, a rain of gravel at about this time. So... I'm That's amazed that on. we have that sort of a precision that we can pinpoint to us, you know, they're not enormous countries uh, that it's going to land here. That might actually have some interesting implications for who, you know, politically speaking, who decides they want to spend money on the um, the interception, <laughs> for instance. Yeah, yeah. The, um, you know, the way you might think about it, I don't know if, if uh, how, how much solicitor mechanics you or your listeners might have. So, uh the um you know there's uncertainty on the positions of all of these measurements right you you spot an asteroid you say here's where it is but there's some uncertainty associated with that you fit the best orbit that goes through the points but all of but then the orbit has some uncertainty associated with it um if you have something with very little data the um 
So the, the, the problem occurs, right? If you have an object where the uncertainty in the orbit overlaps the Earth's position at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's when you might have a problem. There's plenty, and you know, I don't know how many asteroids that have large uncertainties on their orbit, but because those uncertainties don't include the Earth in their positions, no one mm-hmm. no one worries about it. Um, as uh, as the positions get better, the uh, orbit uncertainty gets smaller and smaller. And eventually, if you have something that you know is going to hit the Earth, you also know um, the time the time where that intersection is going to occur. And that means that you can project the mm-hmm. asteroid orbit onto the surface of the Earth. So um, as as the process goes along it, in these exercises, in these... these uh, you know, I, I won't say games, but basically these almost like a role playing game that people plan out what they would do. Um, it starts out where, you know, kind of the entire an entire hemisphere might be at danger, but any given point on the hemisphere is not likely to get the hit. And then as the orbit gets better and better, that uncertainty region shrinks um, in real life almost every time we've done it, the uncertainty region would shrink and then the Earth would no longer be included in it and we're fine. In these exercises, uh, and then in this one case where it hit near the, the border, the uncertainty region shrank to the point that um, you would say, okay, here's this line along the Earth that are the possible points depending on, on you know, when exactly the asteroid shows up relative to the Earth's position. And then when you know that well enough, you could say, yep, it's going to hit in this, this region along the border. The thing that I'm sort of surprised by is, you know, even when we deorbit big ob- objects in space, like Mir and these sort of things, there is a huge area over mm. which um, the object might hit. And we know really well where that object is. Like we've even had people inside some of these <laughs> objects. And I guess what happens is that buffets around in the atmosphere, whereas for an asteroid, you just scream through the atmosphere. Is that the main distinction there? Yeah, good, uh, good. Uh... Shout out for Mirror there for uh, you know the the Gen Xers uh, in the uh, in the in the audience. Um, yeah, that that is exactly it. You know, the atmosphere is you know fifty kilometers thick, hundred kilometers thick at the most. These things are moving twenty kilometers a second. So in the in the course of just the few seconds that the object is in the atmosphere, it doesn't get a, a lot of uh, the. the the specifics don't matter so much because it's only in the atmosphere for five seconds and it's going so mm-hmm. fast. Whereas something like Mir or some of these other satellites, when they deorbit, um, they're kind of the um, the amount of time that they're affected by the atmosphere, since the atmosphere is what's dragging them down, often um, can lead to these huge uncertainties on how fast they're moving at any given time, the the density of the as- uh, atmosphere at any given time where they are and that does that changes over the course of the day that can really have big effect so any it it sounds like so we've only spotted one asteroid that came in before it actually hit is that is that the case um i i will i will uh hedge there were one or two others again very small and for specifics that are kind of funny anecdotes, um, neither was, they were not able to make a prediction on either one. So one of them, um, they kind of the automated software spotted it 
Um, and, you know, kind of the automated stuff was like, oh, this has a, a good chance of hitting the Earth in the next day or two. The problem is that um, that the observations were made on, um, you know, the 29th or the 30th of December. And the impact was, you know, for January 2nd. So no one was really everyone was kind of <laughs> off. No one was paying attention. Um, and again, it was a really small, small object. So um, if it were larger and more of a problem, it would have been spotted, you know, with, with much more time than, than they had. So it was kind of the, the sort of thing that the first day people were back at work, um, <laughs> they said, oh, huh. Uh, so that hit the Atlantic Ocean, uh, they, they think. And then um, there was another one in 2016 where the the data it was another small one it was kind of a the specific places that would have done some of the follow-up were affected by clouds um that one uh hit uh we think somewhere in southern africa there are some uh some uh security camera footage from uh you know a, a, a gas station you know that caught the flash and then these these satellites and things so um, those were all very small, uh, the sorts of things that hit us um, a few times a year. So usually the problem with those is knowing ahead of, is spotting them ahead of time because they're small. But so it sounds like the most unrealistic aspect of uh, the movie Deep Impact or Don't Look Up <laughs> is that they actually saw the asteroid coming. It, it sounds like we're not even going to have a last ditch effort, um, especially if you detect something after it's already hit. Well, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that's, that's, I wouldn't say that. Um, these, you know, objects that are the size of a couch or the size of a chair, um, you know, we're, we get hit all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Every time you go out and you see a shooting star, it's an impact, you know, it's an impact by something maybe the size of a sand grain, typically. Um, as things go up in size, uh, they potentially get uh, more and more of something to, to think about. Uh, the things that are, you know, uh, couch size, chair size, hit a few times a year. Uh, mm -hmm. Something that we get hit by something four meters in diameter about once a year. Again, that's going to be a, a bright flash. Um, it's not going to make it to the ground intact. Um, it might be unfortunate if your house is right under it. Um, but, um, you know, we pick up the pieces for meteorites, you know, and your house isn't going to blow up. It'll, you know, maybe get a hole in the roof from some of the pieces. Um, once every few decades, uh, we get hit by something uh, maybe 20 to 25 meters in size. Uh, that's about the size that the Chelyabinsk, uh, there was there was an impact over Chelyabinsk, uh, Siberia, um, almost 10 years ago, um, of an object about 20 meters in size. Um, it uh that was not spotted ahead of time it was coming from the direction of the sun it hit during the daytime um it uh there was an airburst over the city it broke windows throughout the city the main problem was that um people saw this great big flash went out to the window kind of were looking out and then the shock wave came a minute or two later broke all the windows so about a thousand people were hurt um if we were to spot, we spot objects like that, though that's big enough that we could spot them. Again, the problem with this one is it was coming from the direction of the sun. So it was up mm -hmm. during the daytime. Um, we know, we expect about 5 million objects of that size to be out there. We've found a tiny fraction. But again, when you kind of run the numbers, we think that they hit every 
few decades, somewhere on the Earth, maybe every hundred years, somewhere on the Earth, the Earth is big. Um, going from the other direction, uh, the objects that, uh, the size that that might kind of, um, and I haven't seen Don't Look Up. I, I <laughs> vaguely know about it. So I'm trying to trying to keep away from spoilers, but you know, I have to get through, uh, through the Spider-Man movie. I got to wait for that to get on. Uh, watch Spider-Man first. I have to get through the Beatles stuff first. So eventually I'll get there. But um, um, something the size of a kilometer, we think, would be uh, an impact that would be big enough to really um, cause serious problems for human civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think we've found all of them. Mm-hmm. We think we've found, you know, there. we think there's about 900. We think we've found... If not all of them, practically all of them, um, we have reasons for th- reasons for thinking that um, based on how often we refine things, you know, we can say, oh, here's another one kilometer one. Oh, we already found that one twice. You know, we found that one three mm-hmm. years ago and we found it again six years ago. The, the number of new ones being found is is really small. So we just mm-hmm. don't think there are that many out. So it's a statistical um, argument. More or less. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, and then also based on extrapolating from larger sizes, you know, we, mm-hmm. we think that given this many 10 kilometer ones, there should be about this many five kilometer ones. There should be about this many, you know, mm-hmm. one kilometer ones. And then going from the other direction, we get hit by one meter ones all the time. So where do these things meet? And they both point to about, you know, um, something you, you started by saying 200 meters, um, you know, uh, the um the object that uh, the dart mission will impact dimorphos is about 160 meters in size so i i know those numbers um we get hit by something that size about every 20 to 25,000 years um we we think there are about 20,000 of them um and this starts to get into where it's a little more uncomfortable we've found about 40 percent so there's about half of them maybe a little more that we that we haven't found and um you know i don't i don't know if you're a card player if you're if your listeners are card players poker players um so once every you know once every twenty thousand years obviously that's not very often um if you uh but you know we we live most of us live longer than a year thank thank goodness um and once you start to think okay what are the odds of it happening during a human lifetime you know the numbers still aren't huge but um basically it's like every decade there's Mm -hmm. a one in two thousand chance that this happens you know if you want to say that we know where half of them are and don't worry about half of them that means a one in four thousand chance that's about the odds of getting dealt a four of a kind uh (laughs) so every every decade you know the universe is is dealing us a hand of no Mm. draw you know five card five card and you know odds are good we're not going to get a four of a kind Mm -hmm. but sometimes you know you get the four of a kind so uh well, let, let's say, for example, then on the so not sort of a last ditch effort, but let's say, for example, somehow we spotted one of these, uh, let's just say 200 meters across. Uh, and we had, say, five years, four years, like a decent amount of time with the rockets we currently have, say, Starship, uh, something like that. Could we realistically do something? 
Um, yes. I mean, certainly we would try. Um, the, um, there are a few different approaches that we, that the planetary defense community think are mature enough that we could realistically try, that we could realistically assess. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is a civil defense, you know, so uh, we didn't spot the Chelyabinsk impactor coming in. Uh, but if we did, we probably would have said, you know what, it's, it's going to blow out windows. It's going to be cheaper for us to replace every window in that city and just tell everyone, you know, this is going to happen, you know, prepare like it's for a hurricane or a tornado. You know, if you want to go watch the flash at exactly this time, you can do that, but then you've got two minutes to get away from your windows and get into the basement, you know, um, because launching a mission to do something would not necessarily be be cost effective. Now, whether mm -hmm. the Russian space agency would say, look, we we don't care. We, we're going to do something that's that's up to them. That becomes mm -hmm. a policy issue. Um, but but civil defense, you know, is is one approach. Um the kinetic impactor approach, which is DART, which I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about more, is, is another approach. The most powerful tool we have is a nuclear, a nuclear package, a nuclear device. Um, the people that that deal with this sort of thing say that it's not a nuclear weapon unless you're using it in in war. So it's not a nuclear weapon; it's a nuclear device. Um, unlike in the movies, the idea would not be to blow the asteroid to smithereens. Um, the conventional wisdom for all of these techniques is that you want to keep the object intact and just move it as one thing rather than have to keep track of 10 or 50 or, or a thousand different things, some of which could still hit the earth. If you, if you can keep it intact and move it, that that's, that's thought to be the best mm -hmm. option. So, um, in this case, you'd have a standoff nuclear explosion, um, and then the, the, between the shock wave and the heat vaporizing the side of the asteroid that's facing you that you'd use as some kind of uh, exhaust, um, you, would, um, you would try to move the asteroid out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, and you try to do that presumably early enough that whatever impact you give it will be greater over when sort of integrated over its entire orbit before it hits you. Mm. So, yeah, so the problem, right, the problem, um, you're worried about asteroid impacts, right, when the asteroid and the Earth want to be at the same place at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the Earth is moving through space at like 30 kilometers a second. It's orbiting the sun at like 30 kilometers a second. Uh, if you take the Earth's diameter and you divide it by 30, by 30 kilometers, you get a time you get about seven if you divide it by 30 kilometers a second you get a time it's seven minutes so it takes your seven minutes to move its own diameter in its orbit so the idea is you want to either speed up or slow down the asteroid so that its arrival time is changed by at least seven minutes uh, yeah. so this is much more um it's it's uh generally we tend to think of this not like a goalie in a net trying to you know, knock away a ball or a puck, but two, you know, the, the way I tend to think of it anyways, it's two trains on, on tracks that cross and mm -hmm. one train, you know, the earth doesn't have brakes. 
you can't change the speed of that one. Uh, the other train, you know, you can, you can, you can throttle it up. You can hit the brakes. Um, so the, the sooner, you know, that there's going to be a problem, the less you need to change the speed of that other train. Mm -hmm. If you spot it the day before and you look at the timetable and you go, Oh, Hey, this is going to be a problem. Then, then you just, you know, can change the speed of that, of that second train by just a small amount and you'll be fine. If you realize it 90 seconds before the crash, then you're going to have to take really, really drastic action um, to do it. So, um, so that's why this is, you know, the planetary defense, you know, we, we try to think of it as it's a, it's a whole strategy that's got lots of pieces, you know, the mitigation technique you choose is going to depend on how much warning time you have, which points to the search aspect of it being really important. You know, we need to, mm -hmm. we need to support all of the pieces. We need to not just say, great, we've got, you know, we've got a, a kinetic impactor that will work great. We've got a, you know, we, we think these, these nukes will work in space, uh, but also we need to have the telescopes to say, you know, here we put this, this satellite up. So now we can look in the direction of the sun instead of having a, having nothing able to, you know, look in that direction. Um, and also the, um, the third piece, uh, you know, which is understanding the, the sizes and the, the compositions of these objects. Um, if you find something that's metallic, it's going to be different. Uh, you're going to have a different approach than if it's rock. Uh, if something mm -hmm. has a moon, it'll be a different approach than if it doesn't. Um, some of these things like in these movies or these scenarios where you have very little warning, um, you're going to have to extrapolate from what we know about other objects. So, mm -hmm. so we need to understand what's out there in general to be able to, to make a, a, the best decisions we can or, or the best inferences we can. In terms of, so you mentioned that uh, you want to keep the object together, but let's say, for example, you couldn't deflect it, you just didn't have enough time, and so you go the movie route, <laughs> and you somehow bore in. You, you, is, from a survivability perspective, is it better to have many small objects hitting the Earth or, as opposed to one large object? Um... I think uh, so. This is this is edging toward the stuff that I know I know less about. Um, the amount of I don't know how the uh, heat would couple to the atmosphere. I'm not an atmospheric person, I, and I don't do impacts. Um, I could imagine that having five different, say, or ten different impacts, um, all of which um deliver the total the same total mass um maybe the the devastation in one specific place might be smaller mm -hmm. but um but i don't know if the overall amount of material added to the atmosphere might be as bad or worse plus um you know the um the way things go right mass goes as the the radius cubed so if you broke it into 10 i'll make it easy if you break it into eight objects uh of equal mass each of those eight objects is only going to be half the size of the original mm -hmm. so you're not gaining that much having said that i think if it came down and this is utter speculation 
uh, if it came down to it, I think um, the hope would be, or the strategy would be to try to um, make it so that as few objects hit the earth as possible. So it probably be, mm-hmm. would be to put as powerful uh, a thing as you have up there and yeah, you blow it into a zillion pieces and at least some of those would not hit the earth. I think that would be the, I think mm-hmm. that would have to be the strategy, but that is, um, that's speculation. And I'm not saying that that is the actual strategy or that people who've, who've thought about it more <laughs> uh, would advocate for that. And if it was last ditch, you probably would just send up everything you had available and just hope. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. I mean, there everything um, everything comes with a uh, with a cost benefit analysis, right? If you're going to say uh, that um, I don't know, five percent of your of your launches are going to fail just because you know you can't expect hundred percent of your launches to fail, then is it worth you know, is there's going to be some tipping point at which um, your 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 failed launches are going to cause more damage than mm-hmm. they would have helped if they were successful. Um, For so, instance, if if a launch goes off and it crashes with a nuclear payload, or <laughs> that's also something. For instance, to... yeah. For instance, but okay. I think so... the yeah. I think the I think the the. Um, the answer is, and I think this is the, the right answer. I think the answer is make sure you never, you do everything you can to not end up in a last ditch situation. And there are going to be some of these things that are uh, more difficult to to do that. Uh, but some of the things like your, your garden variety asteroids that are just in the neighborhood that are, you know, maybe you say you don't worry about the smaller ones because they're not that, they're, the atmosphere will mostly take care of them. Um, but you say, here's the size at which we think they are worth, um, they would be worth doing something about if we knew they were going to hit. And then you do the best search you can to make sure you know where as many of those are as you can. Hmm. Um, I think that's, I think that's the, the real answer. But okay, so the real mission that we actually have happening is not nuclear armed, it's uh, kinetic impact, right? This the DART mission. Are you able to give sort of an overview, just a very brief sort of what is the DART mission and why is it awesome? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, the uh, the nuclear option, I guess I'll, I'll say it, it is literally the nuclear option uh, for deflecting asteroids is um, not one that people want to have as kind of our only option, right? Um, right now, people think they could pull off the nuclear thing if needed, um, but that's really the only one that, and it's been tested on Earth. Um, it is against all sorts of international law to test it in space. So um, by some uh, by some arguments, it would also be illegal to, uh, to actually use it. Um, although I think that would probably, if it was the only choice, I, I suspect people would, you know, the, the security council would get it, make it okay. Um, so people have been looking for other options for a while. So the kinetic impactor technique is, um, the idea that you take a spacecraft, you ram it into the object that you care about and you use the momentum of your spacecraft moving, hitting it to change the speed of the asteroid. Um, and then, like I said, uh, you know, if you can change its arrival time by seven minutes, um, then 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 you'll miss the Earth. So um, uh, 
Uh, and then that also ties into the idea of a search. If you have enough time that, that, you know, that, that you can change this momentum by just a little bit. So the dart, uh, so people have wanted to do, um, a test of this technique, uh, for a while, the Europeans, um, did a study for a mission that they were calling Don Quixote, uh, in the late, uh, late nineties, uh, early two thousands, at least I think that's when it was, um, and in their conception, they had a observer spacecraft, which they called Sancho, and they had a um, impactor spacecraft, which they called Hidalgo. And so the observer spacecraft- Who is the donkey be... and who is the, the donkey? <laughs> oh, this Sanky, is his okay. helper, right? Oh yeah, Sancho, Sancho was the helper. And Hidalgo is, um, is uh, knight, it means knight in Spanish. So they didn't want to call for whatever reason, they didn't want to call the impactor uh, Don Don Quixote. So, um, <laughs> um, so uh, the uh, that required two spacecraft. The one spacecraft would be there, uh, you know, understand the system, measure the system before they they changed it, and then the impactor would come in, and then the impact, and then the, the uh, observer spacecraft would basically see what happened. Um, but that required two spacecraft and ESA, this was just not a high enough priority for them. So they, they opted not to follow up. Um, so, um, my colleague, uh, Andy Chang, uh, who's also at the, uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory with me, um, he realized that you could do it with one spacecraft if you visited, um, a binary asteroid system and you impacted the moon of an asteroid. Um, something like 10 to 15% of asteroids that are um, about a kilometer in size have a moon. And so the idea is that, um, you know, you have your, well, here's my props here. Um, <laughs> You know, for those who are listening, view, he's using cups to show us. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, from the point of view of the Earth, if uh, you know, if, if the viewer is is the Earth, and the mug here is is uh, the main body, and this little USB stick is is the moon, you know, it it would move in front, and then come around and and move in back, and you could measure the brightness of um, what's going on from the Earth. You'd see it as a point of light. But as, as the moon moves in front, it would cast a shadow on the main body. It would dim a little bit. Then it would move out of the way. It would get bright again. Then when it moves behind, it would dim again. And you could measure, um, you, we could measure the orbit period of the moon that way. Lots of, lots of asteroid moons have been measured that way. And if you did that before and after the impact, you could see what you did. So um, the DA in DART is double asteroid. We're visiting a double asteroid system. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to hit um, Dimorphos, which is the moon of Didymos. Um, and we're going to change its um, orbit around the main body um, by changing its speed. So we're going to change the speed of um, Dimorphos by something like a millimeter per second. Um, the speed of Dimorphos around Didymos is something like 16 centimeters a second. So a millimeter per second is actually a decent, um, a decent fraction of that. 
Um, the um, asteroids, when they go around the sun, near-Earth asteroids, uh, I said the, the Earth goes around at about 30 kilometers a second. Asteroids also go around the sun, near-Earth asteroids anyway, at about the same kind of speed, about 30 kilometers a second. So um, I said we want to keep asteroids held together. We want to move them in one piece if we can. So that means that we don't want to give them too big of a shove at once. We think that we don't want to push them um, harder than their escape velocity, just as kind of a, a rough guide. Because uh, we think if you push them harder than their escape velocity, then, they're, uh, then they'll just come apart. So, because um, we think they're basically gravel, gravel piles that are held together by their own gravitation. So you don't want to push them more than a millimeter or a centimeter per second. Um, they're going around the sun at 30 kilometers a second. So that's a very hard measurement to make if, if you don't have a second spacecraft there, which is why the European Space Agency was like, we need two spacecraft. Uh, but doing it from the Earth, doing it in this uh, binary system, um, we can make these measurements with telescopes from the ground. We don't need a second spacecraft. So um dart is gonna does that mean you in? just have to yeah. observe them for a long period of time is um yeah the um we have a few different approaches um the orbit period um is 11 a little bit short of 12 hours around around didymos it's something like 11 hours and 55 minutes we think we're going to change that to 11 hours and 45 minutes, say, maybe it'll be 48, maybe it'll be, you know, 36 or whatever, but something like that. So the trick would be, we've got the props again. Um, we know, because we've been measuring this system for a while, we can say, okay, we know when, when it's going to move in front and back. We, we've measured this a long time. We can predict. It's just like a clock, you know. Um, when we, when DART does the impact, if it changes the speed, you know, it'll change the period. So let's say it changes it from 11.55 to 11.45. So, you know, it would come around and we'd say, okay, this is when we see it, then we have the impact. And now it's going to happen a little bit sooner, right? It's going to happen 10 minutes mm -hmm. sooner than it would have. Um, mm -hmm. And then the next time around, it's going to be 20 minutes sooner because every time around, it picks up another 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so we... So actually, you don't need to observe it for that long. It's just, you can just, after one orbit, you can uh, determine... In, in theory, if you had perfect, uh, perfect data and, every, and it was clear skies and everywhere and all of that, um, uh, there's also um, along the same lines, uh, we're going to have the um, Goldstone uh, planetary radar uh, should be looking at the system. Instead of doing that sort of dimming thing that, uh, that I was talking about, the telescopes will do. Uh, the radar will be able to actually see the two objects in space as separate objects, and it will be able to say, okay, if before using the, the the predictions from before the impact, we would have thought that they would be like this, but really they are like this, and so we can now mm -hmm. make that actually direct measurement. Um, so we're... In, so yes, in, in principle, uh, we could know very quickly um, what the what the answer is. Um, we are going to make these measurements for a few months to get as much data as we can, um, to make sure that things have kind of settled down. Mm -hmm. Um, we also want to, to do this correctly. We want to not just 
um, offset from old data. We want to say, okay, now we're starting fresh from the impact. We're going to determine the orbit period as though this is a new object that we've never seen before, and then do the comparisons like that. Um, but um, yes, hopefully we will know um, within a few weeks um, pretty much what the answer, what we expect the answer to be, um, and then and then uh, use the rest of the time to kind of do our, our due diligence. It's possible also, um, you know, we're going to be, um, we're going to be generating um, debris in the system and the debris has its own momentum that it's going to carry away. Um, we have a uh, CubeSat built by the Italian Space Agency that's going to, we're going to release about, um, uh, I think it's 10 days before the impact. It's going to kind of back off a little bit and it's going to pass by something like three minutes after DART does. So it's going to um, take images of, of the impact and take images of the debris cloud. Um, so it's possible, depending on how long it takes that debris cloud to clear, that also would um, mean that we might not be able to make the measurements we want right away. Um, it might mm -hmm. be that the debris kind of obscures things a bit. Why is it that, so we've been going to space for decades now. Mm. Why is it that we're only having sort of our first planetary defense mission occurring now? Is is there some new technology that's come in that allows us to do this? Like what, what what's the difference now? or is it just government interest or? Um, it's, it's sort of a, so planetary um, defense when I really only started to be taken seriously I mean, the, the long version, uh, I'll try to keep it from being the too long version. Um, you know, right when, when, uh, when I was a kid, you know, I was taught that we did not know how the, how the dinosaurs died, right? That we, we just didn't know. And here were some theories. Um, it wasn't until the early 80s that the idea that an impact killed the dinosaurs um, was really seriously proposed and started to be taken seriously. It wasn't until really the 90s that that people started thinking about the natural, you know, consequence of like, oh, well, if an asteroid impact killed the dinosaurs, is anything else going to like out there that we are, have to worry about? And so it wasn't until the 90s that these searches began. Um, in the mid 90s, uh, there was a comet, uh, Shoemaker-Levy 9, that hit Jupiter. Um, that I think was eye-opening for a lot of a lot of folks. That yeah, there are things out there that are still hitting planets today. This isn't the sort of thing that happened billions of years ago, uh, and was a fluke for the dinosaurs. Um, so it it kind of took a while to prepare the scientific community in in some ways. I guess that's the way to, to put it. I think having um, the Chelyabinsk impactor in 2013 in Siberia uh, that I mentioned also was a real eye-opener. I think having, um, uh, there had been searches ongoing for the larger objects for a little while. Uh, Congress asked, tasked NASA with finding the one, one kilometer objects um, mm -hmm. early in the, in the century. And, and so that, uh, that started uh, to reach its completion right at the time that this smaller one hit and uh, kind of helped help give a push to find smaller ones. Um, mm -hmm. And so then, yeah, the question of, okay, well, what if we do find something, what are we gonna do about it? Became more of a, something that we could, mm -hmm. we could uh, think about for real.
I guess it, it uh, before the space program, it wasn't really in people's conception that we could do anything about these events, even if they had thought of the possibility. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that it was only sort of later on that um, I, I didn't realize when when did we know for sure that an asteroid had killed the dinosaurs? When did that? Um, when was the that first? Known? The first proposals uh, and the the finding of the. Um, the iridium layer. So there was basically this, um, mm -hmm. uh, right, this geological work that was done where people found in this particular stratum of rock in Mexico that there was um, an enhanced amount of the element iridium. And iridium is not real common in terrestrial minerals, at least not at the, at the, at the in the crust. And so this sort of realization that you know, where, where is Iridium common? In meteorites. Um, and that kind of came along with this uh, Mexican oil company finding this um, structure that people kind of realized, wow, this is, a, this is actually a huge crater. Um, and um, so this was, yeah, late 80s. But since it was the Mexican oil company, they had kept, they had had the data for a little while, but just didn't, weren't making it public because it's, you know, proprietary uh, proprietary data. So, um, that was really kind of early mid eighties that it started to be taken seriously and, and geologists, you know, science moves slowly when it comes to, um, radical ideas, even if those radical ideas are correct. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I think it, it really took 10 or 15 years. It really was, you know, kind of mid nineties, but I'm again. I'm an astronomer, and I'm in the community. I, I study asteroids, so we were, you know, we we. It made sense to us right away. Um, I, I suspect you might still find uh, some geologists who are sort of more senior who maybe are still not not quite sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose they must have dated that impact somehow. To can they get a dating from the iridium itself? Like, it um, they. They don't date the iridium, but they use kind of their usual terrestrial uh, techniques to 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 date the rock layers just above and just below. I think that's that's oh, just from erosion and that sort of thing. Well, so um, yeah, so you know, rocks get laid down. This happened in a in a marine environment, so um, you know there was there was uh, sediments that washed down you know, and got lithified and, and, and then the big, big impact, iridium all over the world. And then the things that make, you know, and then, you know, life went on in some cases anyway, uh, geology went on anyway, and, um, <laughs> and made more rocks. And so kind of all over the world, they found here's this layer that dates to 65, 66 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And all over the world, everywhere that we have rocks that that are 65 66 million years old they have this extra iridium in them so mm -hmm. um this this crater in mexico got dated to that age and then you know there was there was rock layers in colorado in italy and you know all over the world that show this this extra iridium so actually you have an incredibly rich data set because you can use the entire earth to date this I'd never really thought about that. That's uh... yeah, and then and then the the folks that study fossils, you know, they right, they already knew that rocks of a certain age had dinosaur fossils, and rocks younger than that didn't, and so um, you know, having 
having the uh i'll say coincidence not in not in the you know the, the co co dash incidents not not like it was luck having the fact that this layer below which there's dinosaur fossils above which there aren't and that they're separated by a layer that has a whole bunch of iridium um it was just really uh compelling evidence uh, and that's that's uh that's why you know we now think uh mm-hmm. dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid impact when we did not when uh, when i was a kid so so back to dart then yeah so this is a kinetic impact so where this thing's going to come screaming in and and hit the asteroid we've already had missions that have landed on asteroids right so rosetta and this sort of thing why is this technically difficult more difficult than those sorts of or why is it different than those sorts of missions um great question so there's there's two pieces one is that um Dimorphos is the smallest object that we uh, have ever tried to encounter in space. Um, Didymos is about the size of Bennu or Ryugu, which are you know the the were the targets of the the Osiris Rex and the Hayabusa two missions. Um, but Dimorphos is is about the size of one of the pyramids of Egypt, um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Dart is about the size of a vending machine, uh, and then not counting the solar panels. If you count the solar panels, it's like a bus length tip to tip. So we are targeting something smaller uh, than anything else we've tried to target by at least a factor of two to, to three. Um, mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, Rosetta and uh, you know Hayabusa and Hayabusa two and and Osiris Rex, um, all spent long periods kind of doing reconnaissance, kind of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 10 kilometers away. What is this like? Can we land there? Let's pick out like three or four spots. Um, and then came in at whatever, you know, slow, slow pace that they came in um, to to touch. Uh, and even in... in uh, um, Rosetta's case or Philae's case, I guess, you know, it, it was not uh, just the, the nature of the surface was such that it still kind of bounced around. It hard enough to do that. So um, Dart is coming in at 6.1 kilometers a second, um, you know, That's which is quick. enough. Yeah, uh, it's um, enough to, uh, you know, go from uh, from New York to Washington. I always screw this up um in under a minute so you know the um and in it and like i said it's the smallest thing we've ever targeted so you put those two things together and it's um it's definitely a challenge so it's not something that we have someone sitting with a joystick you know or a, or a you know the console you know Hitting, hitting, doing their, their special move uh, to, to make sure you get there. Um, the uh, There's uh, this smart navigation algorithm, smart nav, we call it, that is going to control the spacecraft um, in the last hour or so. Uh, and it's going to steer us in. Um, maybe it's the last couple of hours. I should know this, sorry. Um, 
it's some it's like maybe the last four hours i think it's the last four hours um uh where we we kind of give it the wheel and uh and uh it, it steers us in so um you know we that that uh, algorithm has been tested extensively it's been tested with um in situations that we don't think we don't expect to find so given kind of extra you know tested particularly robustly and um yeah it's going to be very exciting it's going to be part of the excitement is um it's it's uh you know like i said it's going to appear as a point just a single point of light from the earth it's also going to appear as a single point of light to dart until those last few hours um mm -hmm. and it's really most of the data we're going to get uh that we're going to use from dart itself is just going to come in those last maybe you know 10 minutes last five minutes uh that's where we're going to get these good images of the of the surfaces of these bodies that that will help us interpret data um, what happens if you if you come screaming in and you miss <laughs> do you just do another round of the sun or like what, is there another mission is there a plan b what um no no we we come in and we hit um i mean if if uh you know we are we are confident we feel really good you know the the engineers ran the numbers and the numbers are as as good as you could hope for um you know, like every NASA mission, there are contingencies for uh, what you might do in case things don't go as you plan. But, um, you know, we, uh, we fully expect that, uh, you know, on September 26th, uh, September 26th here in North America, September 27th, uh, well, North and South America, I guess, it'll be uh, September 27th UT, September 26th, um, here in in uh, the western hemisphere that uh you know we'll just we'll just have good news how does the um so you're imaging so the, the satellite itself is imaging the asteroid is that active like are you shooting lasers out like or is it just passive how does that work yeah it's passive um and actually now i take it back now that i think about it i think we hit it maybe it's like 23 15 ut so it's maybe not quite december maybe it's not quite september 27th ut um, anyway, uh, no, it's just images. The, there's one instrument on board dart and that's, um, it's a visible camera, uh, which is very much like, um, the, the Lori camera on new horizons that went to Pluto. It's derived from the same, uh, lineage. Basically it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a offshoot a variant. Uh, I don't know what's the right, uh, how, how to, how to say it. I guess it descended. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's it, that's it. So uh, it comes in and it determines, you know, where uh, for the first uh, part of of while uh, for the first part of the time that it's active or that it's that we've given it the the controls. Um, Didymos is and Dimorphos is behind Didymos. It's just going to be seen as one object. So basically, it's. It's told keep you know steer toward that object, and then uh, at some point, Dimorphos moves out from behind, and it's, it sees two objects, and then it's told okay now steer toward the second one. So um, that's it, and that's completely autonomous. I guess it's like shooting down a missile or something. So we're pretty good at this technology at this point, or. Uh... 
is it <laughs> um so you have this satellite so dart is screaming in uh, what did you say six kilometers a second you said yep so pretty fast and then it it impacts the moon uh, of this asteroid and so one thing i'm a bit curious about is do we know how the momentum of the satellite will couple to the asteroid you know is this going to just plow through is it going to mm. you know is it going to leave a big what what's what's the, do we have any idea so we think so in a in a perfectly inelastic collision right it becomes a junior high school or high school physics problem you know we know exactly what will happen um and it will change the period of the of of uh the of dimorphos by something like seven or eight minutes um but we do expect there to be debris uh you know we expect uh, the, there to be ejecta that ejecta is carrying momentum um it's going to carry it in the direction opposite dart darts incoming direction uh more or less so we think that's going to be the equivalent of giving an extra push we don't um we don't know if that's going to be an extra 20% push. We don't know if it's going to be an extra factor of two or a factor of four. There are uh, laboratory experiments and, and um, logical reasons to expect any, any of those answers, which is part of why we're doing the experiment. Um, in terms of could we plow all the way through, um, we expect there to be a crater. We aren't 100% sure of the size of the crater. Um, uh, I, I seem to remember 15 to 20 meters being what the impact experts were guessing. Again, that's based on their best, uh, best estimates. There's other, um, the range of estimates are as much larger. We do not, um, if it does not seem physically possible that we're going to disrupt Dimorphos. Um, we are not coming in with enough momentum. There's not enough energy in the impact. It's too big. It has too much mass and too much uh, self-gravitation for us to do that. Um, we don't think we're going to plow all the way through. Um, kind of the way you might think about this is, like I said, it's it's about the size of a vending machine. Um, mm -hmm. And it has a mass of five or 600 kilograms, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. um, so it's not super dense it's not then. super dense um, rock is um, something like you know two to three thousand kilograms per cubic meter in density and so the way you could think about it is it's it's coming in however fast but it's you know it's it's when it encounters um, kind of it's equivalent in weight or it's equivalent in mass. It's going to slow it down. Maybe it's a factor of two of that, or maybe it's a factor of 10 or who even knows, but still it's not like this 500 kilogram thing is going to be able to go through a million kilograms of, of rock. So, um, but it so, could be the case. Is it, is it not possible that the, the asteroid is just very, very loosely held together? because uh, yeah. didn't we have these cases with with some of these uh so i don't know if it was rosetta or um uh these one of these missions when it landed it sort of its fit, feet of the lander sort of went inside the asteroid it was yeah. loose right yeah osiris rex um went a few meters i think it was maybe a few meters in um before uh kind of 
kind of realizing it and, and leaving. Um, um, Hayabusa, Hayabusa 1, on the other hand, um, kind of smacked into uh, the asteroid Itakawa and kind of flopped around for a little while before getting itself, before getting its its act together and, and, and leaving. Um, so we, we think that um, Didymos or Dimorphos is more likely to be like that that second case in composition. Uh, but even on top of that, you know, there's still, there's still this mass argument. Even if you have, you know, imagine something crazy, 80% porosity. Still, you know, the, the uh, Dimorphos is gonna be a hundred meters deep. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's only so far you can go. And it'll be presumably in that kind of situation, crushing the material ahead of it. Um, mm -hmm. so it's, it's not like, um, the way the physics works and I'm not an impact person either. Uh, but my understanding of the way the physics works is the more coherent, if you have more coherent material, then you hit it and you blow it out. Um, if you have mm -hmm. more crushable material, then, then you crush it, but you don't really blow so much of it out. So it's, it's still there to, um, mm -hmm. to it's kind like of hitting a pillow way. or something. So in terms of, uh, so if. So the ideal situation then is, so it, is it easier to, so how does the physics work? Do, if I wanted to move the asteroid, do I want it to be soft or do I want it to be solid? Um, I think the way we tend to, we try to look at this is we try not to want anything <laughs> because who knows, <laughs> who knows what's going to show up. Um, there are, um pluses and minuses to all of these right you can imagine that if you have a very porous asteroid actually i'll back up um we think that um this extra push that i that i talked about from from the debris uh so that's related to a parameter we call beta that we talked about this momentum transfer efficiency and um in the inelastic collision case I talked about, where you don't make any debris at all, beta equals one. Um, in these cases that you uh, that we were talking about, where it's it's super porous and it just buries itself, um, beta is still equal to one because all of the momentum from the spacecraft still got transferred. It's still inelastic. It's just you know instead of inelastic, like it just kind of sticks to the surface. It buries itself. It, all the momentum still transfers. You've still got a lower limit. It's still one. Um, if you throw off debris, we think that a uh, a solid a solid hunk of rock would give you the most debris that carries the most momentum. So that's the kind of case where we think you might get a factor of two. You might get a factor of three extra push. So on the one hand, that we that would help make you help the help you move it more. On the other hand, that also means you have a more massive asteroid, you know, for a given size. So um, whether you'd rather show up and I think it would work out, I think, again, speculating, uh, that you would rather have less mass to worry about, um, that you would rather move less mass than more mass, which I think means you'd rather have the more porous body. Um, but that might depend on, you know, would you rather have a 50% porous body 
So it weighs, so it's less, so it's half the mass of, of the solid body. But if you're getting a beta of three for the solid body, then maybe that more than makes up for it. So it's, it's part of, you know, part of the experiment. I see. So it, it sounds like really you need to go and do this experiment a whole bunch of times to get an idea because if you just have one impact, then okay, you could, you can learn some stuff about that sort of asteroid, but it could be, you know, there, there's, there could be classes of asteroids that are different in composition. Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly you want as much data as you can get. Um, right now we have none. Uh, so getting one is <laughs> getting one is the most, most important, right? That's the most important increment you can have. Um, also beyond, um, beyond that, we do have these models that the impact impact scientists use. Um, they are all, so, so they are, you know, predicting now what, what's going to happen. Um, and those predictions are based on, you know, literally in some cases you have a cinder block in a, in a laboratory and you shoot a BB at it. And, you know, you say, okay, we can, we can now um, simulate that and we can now do a really good job of reproducing what happens if you fire a BB at a cinder block. Um, you know, we have a, we can simulate what happens if you take a two megaton nuclear package and you, you, you know, you explode it against a, in the desert, you know, we can do that. Um, so if we take those, you know, those computer models and we apply it to what happens if you smash a spacecraft into a 160 meter rock asteroid, here's what you get. So um, they will be able to test those simulations and they'll be able to say, okay, now we think we've, um, we've got that. Now we think we can, we can match that. So we've matched this kind of rock uh, getting hit by this kind of spacecraft of uh, this in this gravity, you know, with this porosity. Um, and uh, that reminds me that, uh, that, that I should, I should, uh, I should not derail myself, but I, I will note something else after this. So um, we know how metal differs from rock. So now instead of, you know, using rock in this uh, equation or rock in this simulation, we're going to do metal. Um, now, instead of something that's 160 meters across, we're going to do something that's, 100 meters across or 330 meters across or something. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll also note um, that, um, you know, this is an international, uh, planetary defense is an international problem. Asteroids can hit anywhere and do hit anywhere. And um, that uh, the European Space Agency will be following up DART by sending a mission called HERA to the Didymo system. They'll be arriving a couple of years after the DART impact and they will be making measurements that DART cannot make. So we don't think we're gonna be able to see the crater. Uh, obviously DART itself won't be able to see the crater it makes. Uh, we don't think Leecher Cube will uh, be passing by, uh, we think Leecher Cube will be passing by too soon to see that crater in its final form. Uh, we think it'll be blocked by the debris mm -hmm. cloud. But Hera will be able to go back and go, okay, here's, here's the crater. Here's the size of the crater. Um, here's, you know, kind of the area on Dimorphos that got affected. Um, here's a really good mass measurement. Um, and so that then will be able to, will allow us a, a next generation of these models to be 
tested. You know, we can say, okay, here's, here's what we think we have. And now we can, again, predict here's how big the crater is going to be. And, uh, and then Terra can come by and test that. So uh, ideally, yes, we do this test. If we had infinite resources and didn't have to prioritize what we did, um, you know, then, then we do this all, uh, all sorts of places, but, um, but even just the one test is going to be really important and really give us a lot of information. Uh, one thing that I think about, um, just from my own research is, is you have to apply for grants to get funding for these sorts of missions I'm imagining. And so it, it could be that you find out all this wonderful information about, um, you know, kinetic impacts of asteroids. And then we just unfortunately never get attacked by any asteroids. <laughs> we never get, <laughs> you know, unfortunately this knowledge is never uh, useful in that particular, um, application is there is there also an argument that this is useful for you know eventual mining of asteroids you know moving asteroids into some parking orbit or um is that when 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 people are putting forward their grant applications does this make its way in there or i think um the uh so i guess uh, in in uh i i know you you know, you, you use that as the setup for the question. You know, again, remember every every decade they, you know, we get dealt we get dealt a hand of poker, and uh, even if that hand doesn't get dealt for a thousand years, hopefully this will this will be useful to someone. Although I, I'm I'm sure they would do follow ups in that in that thousand years. Um, there are definite applications. Some of the technologies being flown um, on Dart, and some that have already been tested are are already going to be useful. You know, we are using. Um, roll out solar arrays. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we launched, um, the roller solar arrays were, were rolled up like, you know, paper towels and, um, unfurled shortly after launch and they're, they're working. That's how, you know, DART is getting its power. Um, and those will be used on science missions, uh, other missions, you know, the, where you need to save space. And now you can, instead of having to worry about folding things up and, and sticking them into a, you know, you can stick them into smaller rockets than you might otherwise. Um, smart nav, um, you know, guiding us in to this small target at 6.1 kilometers a second. Um, yeah, you can imagine that uh, if you want to deliver uh, something uh, with precision, uh, say a penetrator, you know, an, an instrumented penetrator, um, to um it needn't even be um an asteroid you know if you say look we really want to study this this part of mars or this part of the moon or you know and you know you, you can you can know that you can come in really fast and um you know deliver something to this um you know specific spot i mean there's there's a and a, a landing ellipse just like any any other any other thing, but you know, our landing ellipse is really pretty small compared to uh, a lot of them. Uh, and uh, and again, you don't have to spend um, a long time doing uh, doing reconnaissance. Um, in terms of mining, um, yeah, I think um, you know, I guess to, to back up a half a step, uh, but related to mining, you know, you can use the smart nav sort of thing, and it doesn't have to be six and a half kilometers or six point one kilometers a second. You could use it when it's really slow too. There's no, there's no reason that you couldn't um, just say, okay, we've we've got this uh, figured out, and instead of doing these these 
rehearsals, you know, or 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 these these specific things we're worried about, you can kind of hand it over to. It's it's another way to make spacecraft operations autonomous in a way that uh, might be might be attractive for uh, for folks. Um, yeah, you know, those those are the obvious things. You know, you can again imagine that uh, if you want to. Um, put seismic probes down on an object, um, you know, and then create your own earthquake, um, you know, whether, whether you use, use this sort of thing to say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put a whole bunch of penetrators down. And then the last one is just going to be the impactor. Um, so basically there's, there's the, the physics of the impact itself, which you learn about because, you know, this is something we've never done before, but also there's just a massive tech demonstration of, you know, the, the thrusters or the, yep. the solar panels or whatever, whatever, uh, other tech you have on board. I, I'm a bit curious when it comes to this sort of a mission, where, where does the main cost go? Is it, is it the launch? Is it the design? Is it just operations? Is it fabrication? Where, 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 what's the main sink, um, for a mission like this? Our, um, our operations aren't very long. <laughs> um, you know, we are, uh, especially, you know, you look at, um, and this is not, not intended as a, as a negative, you know, you've got, um, right. Say spirit and opportunity, right. Which landed on Mars. They were 90 day missions and then they ended up lasting for, you know, 14 years or something. Um, our, you know, we are launching in, um, when we launched, we launched in November. And if we, if the mission is not over, you know, in the end of September, at least the <laughs> operations part, then we're, then we're in trouble. Um, you know, the, the scientists continue to make measurements for a few months later, but, um, but from launch to end of mission is two years, you know, a little less. Um, mm -hmm. We are doing this during a pandemic. So the, um, some of the fabrication, um, some of the things, some of the procedures that people that we would normally do had to be modified, um, especially early on when there was no vaccine, when there was no, you know, when when we didn't know a lot about COVID, and so you know the the social distancing and the uh, rules were very, you know, very strict, and were were like I said, we didn't we didn't know enough to know uh, how to how to do it most efficiently, but, um, you know, they, they came up with all sorts of, um, modifications, uh, that I think they'll, they'll now be able to use in the future, you know, to say, well, we really don't need 20 people doing this. You know, we don't need 20 people in the clean room. Uh, if we have one person or, or three people and someone holding up their iPhone, you know, maybe it won't literally be their iPhone, you know, on zoom, but some sort mm -hmm. of here's, here's our, our VR equivalent. Here's our, you know, Here's our AR way of doing some of these some of these uh, these reviews. Um, the um, you know the launch vehicle uh, we launched on a, on a SpaceX uh, Falcon Nine. Um, I think that was the first deep space mission that SpaceX has done. Um, you know, uh, if you want to, you could, you could argue about the car, I guess, but certainly the first, um, <laughs> the first deep space mission, you know, that, that 
was doing something for uh, you know I'll, I'll 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 just stop there and um whether you know hopefully uh right the the idea of getting these commercial companies involved is to bring the overall cost down so what our launch vehicle cost was versus um what future or other missions might have is is going to differ um there was a, originally uh some proposals some versions of this had us um doing a ride share um and and just kind of launching into earth orbit and then kind of making our way out um there were various reasons that 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 was not the plan that was that was decided upon but you could also imagine that would take the the launch costs down um mm -hmm. so i i think it's hard um hard for me to pin exactly you know this is the first um mission that the planetary defense coordination office has taken from start taken from the start it inherited one or it took over one um so we cost uh dark cost less than a than a typical discovery mission um mm -hmm. whether it's half or or a third depends on what what kind of time frame you're averaging or you're you're adding up um mm -hmm. but um but uh you know i i think uh the the um planetary science decadal survey i don't know if that means anything to you every every 10 years or so the planetary science community um comes together uh, or is comes together under the auspices of the national academy of science and the u.s planetary science community anyway and decides on um priorities for the next decade so uh the current such study is underway uh and um it includes planetary defense for the first time. So, uh, how, um, what, what they will end up prioritizing for planetary defense, and what kind of um, mission budget they'll look for, um, is um, is TBD. I guess that's a long-winded <laughs> answer, and I might not have even answered it. Well. Well, no, you sort of did. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there there is the breakup of whether you're spending money on, you know, you've got a shorter mission, so you have uh, less less cost in terms of just personnel, for instance. Is it, so thinking of the future, you know, what is what is the path forward to a comprehensive planetary defense plan? You know, what what are the components that you see is most important? Uh, what, what do you think the trajectory is uh, in, in that sort of uh, direction? The um, the consensus is pretty clear that having um, having a search telescope uh, in space um, is is the next is really what we should be doing. You know that that should be what happens next. Uh, the um, Congress has, uh, like I said before earlier, Congress had tasked NASA with finding all of the objects one kilometer and larger. That's that's done. Uh, Congress has since tasked NASA with finding ninety percent of uh, hazardous NEOs down to, or potentially hazardous, you know, basically the ones we're worried about, down to one hundred and forty meters. So that uh, search is underway. Um, that involves both 
Um, well, right now it only involves ground-based telescopes. The Rubin telescope is uh, coming online um, before too long, and that's going to be a major uh, component of that. But a space-based telescope is seen as the other complementary component um, uh, for kind of doing what Congress asked within a reasonable time. Um, DART is uh, obviously happening. Um, there will be other, um, you know, other things that we can we can test. Um, there are other techniques that um, people have proposed that uh, maybe are not quite ready to be tested yet, but one could imagine uh, before too long. Um, Do you have some examples along those lines? Sure. So there's um, the gravity tractor, which. Uh, <laughs> is another one that people think is mature and it is really a very um elegant idea basically it 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 because all masses gravitationally attract one another uh the idea is you send a massive spacecraft and you park it next to the asteroid you're worried about and you let the 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 gravity from your spacecraft kind of pull on the asteroid and since you can control where your spacecraft is you kind of you know have to move it close enough that that you know the r squared is is such that the gravity from your your spacecraft is is non-negligible uh so you have to keep it pretty close uh when you do that you can then kind of move your spacecraft and the asteroid should follow um obviously you need a very massive spacecraft and it needs to operate very close to the asteroid and it needs to do so for a, a pretty long time we're talking about um you know potentially needing decades um for for this type of mitigation to work but you don't need to touch the asteroid it doesn't, uh, the composition doesn't matter at all. Um, mm -hmm. You just need to keep this spacecraft operating close by. So there, there are, um, and it's a lot more controlled than either a, a nuclear detonation or, or a kinetic impactor, you know, where, where for a kinetic impactor, right, we're, we're going to hit and it's, going to react how it reacts it's going to move however it's going to change the orbit however it changes it um and maybe you could have a string of two or three or five or ten coming in one after another and move ever larger objects but you're not necessarily going to be able to say this is the orbit i wanted in um mm -hmm. where you know i i want to i want to have it hit the moon i want to have it come around hit the moon take it take it off the board just not ever worry about it again um while for the for the gravity tractor in principle you could you could say here's here's exactly where i want it to go hmm. um so that, that's that's the obvious in 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 the case sorry yeah. in in the case where it's not super porous and it's just a solid object uh you could also just tether your spacecraft right this is mm. this is probably simpler so um 
the the issue with things like uh you know we're going to tie our spacecraft to the rock and we're going to just put a rocket engine on it is that these these things are spinning right um and Mm -hmm. they're they're spinning with sometimes very rapid spins and orbit and rotation poles that could be pointed kind of wherever so you're left either um putting your rocket um at at the at one of the poles and saying okay at least we can consistently push it in one direction or de-spinning it uh and then doing that or uh just saying okay we're just gonna you know when we're pointed this way we're not gonna have the rocket on when we're pointed this way we are and then in between we're not gonna you know we're only gonna have the rocket on for a small fraction of the time um in terms of a tether, that's actually one that people have been proposing lately, which is also really interesting. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, the 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 things uh, that I was talking about with uh, with the kinetic impactor and with these others, you know, you want to change the speed so that the object is not right. So, like I said, so so it it doesn't come to the right to, to the wrong place at the wrong time, um, and that's because um speed and position in an orbit are intimately connected right if you change the speed a little bit then you will change the orbit um and and technically speaking and then that means that you're not going to come back to the to the place you're worried about so um the a tether idea that people have come up with actually does something different um there's a proposal that you put a big tether on your asteroid and maybe uh you'd have to de-spin it first i guess um and if you make it a long enough tether then you actually change where the center of mass is and by changing the center of mass now you change the orbit that way so it's it's moving however fast around the sun but now the center of mass isn't isn't where it it, it Hmm. is in a different place so so the orbit has to change to make up for the fact that it's traveling you know in a different speed um so you can imagine some of these, some of the tethers involved there are really long. You know, we're talking about kilometer scale, 10 kilometer scale tethers to really make it worth doing. Um, and but that's uh, really clever. So you just, you essentially just change the shape of the object and, and change the center of mass. So no, no, ro- no rockets needed, nothing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, constructing something like that would then be, be, you know, the, where the underpants gnomes come in, but, uh, but, but that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's it. So, you know, the part of the reason, I guess, you know, backing way, way up in a sense, a part of the reason that the kinetic impactor is the one that's getting tested is because it's straightforward. You know, we get, uh, results quickly. We don't have to wait a long time to see what happened. Um, and, and some of the, these others are both more technically challenging and then you need to, to wait a while is is there an argument for having um a kinetic impactor sort of you launch a mission tomorrow and it sits out uh, orbiting the planet or in an l2 point or somewhere so that when we do see an asteroid we only have a day's warning it's already there it's already ready and you sort of just kick off is, is that something that people talk about people uh it, it it comes up um the um Conventional wisdom right now is that since an asteroid that you're worried about can come from any direction and um, 
and the orbit you want to and what you want to do to it might differ um that if you put that putting something into orbit around the earth and then having it go um is it's not clear that you're better off doing that um and um you know something like right what you're proposing uh the comet interceptor mission say right is going to sit around until there's a comet worth investigating and then it's going to go go you know to mm-hmm. see it uh but in that case it just needs to get within a certain distance from whichever angle it's not trying to change the orbit right so um Mm-hmm. So that that seems to make sense in that. Oh, uh, so it doesn't have to have a big relative speed. Yeah, yeah. You're not trying to do something specific mm-hmm. with it. Um, I see, I see. But maybe maybe in the future, when you have your ideal system in place, you just have lots of lots of craft in different orbits, and that's when you've got unlimited money. And this is yeah. something that you really worry about. Yeah. Well, I think the unlimited money case is you put your super high powered laser, you know, out at. Uh, you know, at the North Pole of the Moon or something, and and you just pick them off as you come in, as they come in. But um, um, yeah, I think ideally, I mean, it's it's funny, and and I know that uh, that this isn't exactly what Don't Look Up uh, dealt with in in this case, but I know the the metaphorical. I understand what what Deep Look Up is uh, Don't Look Up is doing metaphorically. Um, you know, there there is a question, and and there is a legit question. You know. If we find something that's going to impact in, you know, the the 2300s, you know, do we do something about it, you know, or, you know, I mean, there's another part of the issue, which is that we would never, given the the nature of these orbits and our uncertainty, we would not know if it would hit in the 2300s. We'd know that there was a 50% chance of it hitting in the 2300s, but you know, if we knew something was going to happen, would we do something about it? Or would we say, wow, look, the 2300s, I mean, let the folks in the 2200s worry about it because their technology is going to be so much better. You know, would we have wanted people in the 1800s to have done something if they found something, mm-hmm. you know, or what? So there, there is that interesting question about how do we you know, what, what uh, preparing for a future impact looks like, you know, and I think that mm-hmm. certainly what we're doing on DART and collecting data for people to use, and I think uh, doing things on that, uh, that level makes sense. Um, it's not necessarily clear to me that, especially given how fast technology changes, that um, having a, a fleet of things at the ready that we'd have to either replenish every 20 years or we'd say, mm-hmm. yeah, here's this thing that, you know, is using 20, mm, 20, 20s yeah. technology. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what are, what are we we're risking our, you know, we're depending on 2020s technology. Oh, this is terrible. You know. It's sort of in vogue at the moment to talk about making uh, humanity a multi-planetary species, right? Is this, is this then, uh, so talking on the unlimited budget, once again, is this something that fits into the planetary defense strategy realistically, or is it not really being, it's not seriously discussed by people in your profession, let's say? Um, it's, it's certainly not, um, seen as planetary defense. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, Personally, not speaking for anyone 
anyone I work for, anyone I've ever talked to, or anyone I've, you know, um, the number of people who I think are going to be living off planet um, is going to be minuscule, I think, for the foreseeable future, certainly compared to the number of people on Earth. So the idea of, well, we've got, you know, I don't even know what the most optimistic number of people want to, most optimistic and realistic number of people want to throw out there is, you know, if there's 50,000 people living off planet in 50 years, I don't see any way there's going to be 50,000 people living off the planet in 50 years. But if there were 50,000 people, that still leaves, you know, 7 billion on Earth. And clearly, you know, that's where we have to put our our efforts and that's where we have to put our resources and that's where we have to put our you know ethically um you know the idea that that taking a small number of people and putting them on other planets means that now that's a solution to uh to this issue of you know the the seven billion people who don't go off planet i, I don't think that i don't think that makes sense but uh, sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit well let me ask then, let's say, for example, a meteorite comes down and it's going to hit you. you um, Andy Rifkin, it's going to hit you specifically. You know, it's it's particularly targeted. You'd prefer to, uh, would you prefer to be hit by a meteorite and die and then also have the rest of the people die? Or would you prefer to, you know, not exist in a you know universe that does have 50,000 people survive, if you know what I'm saying? Oh, well, sure. I don't, I don't think that... Um, I think that if you um, look at it in an in an actuarial sense, <laughs> seriously, right? I mean, what's the best way to save fifty thousand people, and or what's the best way to save humankind? Um, you know, um, and you know, you could turn it around once you've got your fifty thousand people on Mars. Now, do you need a, a, a planetary defense program from Mars? You know, and do you not, you know, what, what does that look like? Do you say, well, we're not going to bother putting as much money into it because it's only 50,000 people? I mean, ethically, I, I mean, it's funny. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, it seems like, like, um, but you would now presumably have to take that seriously at some level right well mars gets hit by this many asteroids now we have to look out for this and and it's a fragile ecosystem maybe look we can't you know if something hits within it's easier to disrupt um mm -hmm. I, I don't know i don't know um so i'm i'm not there's less atmosphere to dampen yeah. the fall of the uh yeah so you have to worry about smaller objects it's closer to the asteroid belt um so um i think it's um I, I think whatever whatever the future of of humankind is i think we uh should make sure that that we that we go forward um as ethically as we can that we bring the best the best of humankind into space and not the worst and um mm -hmm. we, we um I, I think the whole multi-planet species argument just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me uh, 
as a, a solution. Uh, so it's different to say, you know, as you posed, sure, if I, I, I'd rather not have all of humanity die out in a single event. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, uh, but I, I think that that um, makes it all the more important that we have to do what we can to make sure that all of humanity doesn't die. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it, it doesn't mean that I'm going to try or we should try less hard just because we've got 50,000 people living somewhere else. Is this one of the, is this one of the reasons why you got into this initially? Like the, was this sort of the, the picture it, it's meaningful to, um, you, you know, people have different reasons why they do the, the research they do. Um, was looking at, you know, being a custodian of humanity and, and I'm, you know, these are big words and all this sort of thing, but was it in reality something that you, that really drove you to enter the field? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, when I started and I pulled this story before, uh, so I, I apologize if you've, if you've encountered it. Um, when I was an undergrad, uh, you know, an undergraduate and in high school and stuff. And I had all sorts of friends who were, you know, going to be doctors. And one of my close friends from college, you know, went to med school and was doing bio research as an undergrad. And when we met and, you know, I remember thinking, boy, I don't, I don't want that responsibility. Right. I don't want to be like, you know, I'm going to ruin someone's day, you know, like, uh, like, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, we have to do this root canal or we've got to, or, or something much more serious, right? I don't want to be like, have that kind of responsibility. So, uh, you know, astronomy, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, as kind of working on asteroids and the time and place that I was working on asteroids, uh, when all of these searches were starting to be done and people were starting to take it more seriously, um, it, it did um, kind of, appeal more that here's, here's a thing that I am, um, studying that I have, uh, some expertise in and, um, you know, seeing friends, um, you know, in, in graduate school and after, and again, absolutely no, no disrespect, you know, people that are studying, you know, how do you, how thick is the ice shell on Europa? Because we want to know if we can, you know, if there's any life under there, or we really need to understand the, the perchlorate fraction in Martian soils, because that will tell us about the habitability 2 billion years ago. And, um, uh, you know, or, or we're studying the rings of the rings of Saturn because we want to understand how old the rings of Saturn are, you know, um, all of these are important questions and all of them, you know, if you sit next to someone on an airplane and they ask you what you do, you might spend, have to spend a while trying to get around to like, no, here's, here's, here's why this is important. And you wouldn't have realized it. You sit next to someone on an airplane and you say, yeah, I study asteroids. I'm, I'm involved with planetary defense. Um, that's not something you need to spend a long time explaining. They, uh, it is, it is the sort of thing that is consistently showing up in surveys as one of the, you know, one or two most important things that people think NASA should be doing. So um, it is it is gratifying that um, maybe something we're doing will be something that people will will look back and and uh, say, well, it's, I'm, I'm glad they did this. I'm glad they started thinking about this in the 2020s. Uh, you know, I'm glad mm -hmm. they, they did this this experiment in the 2020s. I'm glad they started thinking about it in the 1990s. So, so that is... Um, 
that is definitely it, it uh, whether or not it got me into it in the first place it is definitely a uh something that does you know keep uh keep us uh keep us going it, it, it's sort of an interesting in as far as research goes it's an interesting um you know some people that go into research just for the fundamental discoveries they wanted to discover some new thing that no one's ever seen before or they want so th this has a, a slightly different flavor to it that's quite nice um in in a way which i quite like i'm looking at the time now and i realize we've only got about 10 minutes before you need to run away and so i had two questions that i wanted to ask one just popped into my mind because uh, of something you said so so you mentioned um that you don't think we're going to have fifty thousand people on mars um you know in the next 50 years what are your thoughts uh, in that same time period with respect to um, space tourism and uh, mining? Where do you think we'll be in that sort of uh, direction? Yeah, so, um, you know, some of, uh, you know, you asked why uh, I got into, into the planetary defense stuff. And I, I also have my research expertise what I what I do when I'm not doing planetary defense is I study um, uh, hydrated minerals on on asteroids. So kind of you know asteroids, the, the minerals that have have water or or hydroxyl. So the sorts of things that the asteroid miners are interested in, at least one of them. Um, so I've I've interacted with some of the space mining companies, um, and in you know in part uh, because it's it's you know I I think this is potentially you know, goes back to what I was saying, we, we should try to bring the best of humanity into space, and not not the worst. And I think some of this space tourism, some of the space mining stuff has potential to, you know, go either way. Um, and uh, hopefully it will be something that is done for the benefit of people that that we can say, we're, we're, we're doing this stuff. And look at all this wealth that is enabling us to teach, you know, to 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 make vaccines available everywhere to eradicate malaria to you know we can we can you know the un is getting some cut because or whomever is getting some cut because asteroids are the common heritage of humankind you know they're they're in space the outer space treaty says all of this stuff um uh that that's ideally what i was what what uh, would happen right at least in my view um we say antarctica is you know we've been working in antarctica internationally for the benefit of humankind for decades and and we can take that to the moon and mars and the asteroids um the um so the the asteroid mining stuff i'm i've been working with with you know like i said i i have some expertise in some of this i i think there's uh great potential there i think it's interesting um you know uh with the launch of jwst uh with the idea that that there can be these big telescopes that um could be refueled you know on on a time scale of 20 or 30 years that that the idea that maybe maybe that's where a market is i know people have talked about a market for um for asteroid mining being refueling uh communication satellites and so if if you can create that sort of market I guess where where you could say okay here's here's um uh you know the next the next big telescope uh, the Louvoir or or something you know the next big telescopes after JWST um 
the Roman, the Roman space telescope. And if you can make them refuelable, then all of a sudden these companies might have a high profile um, refueling option mm. to, to shoot for, to propose to. Um, so maybe. Um, I'm hoping that uh, space tourism ends up um, not like Everest, you know, where it's uh, really <laughs> specialized. You have to be super rich. It's very, very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous for a for a group of people that kind of do that, do our guides as their jobs and don't necessarily get a lot of recognition and have great conditions. And that the only people that do it are rich or who receive the largesse of the rich. Um, I'm hoping mm -hmm. it is not that. Um, I'm hoping it is more like, you know, the way that air travel in the in the early days was some 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 person with their personal airplane shows up at your state fair and takes people up for for a 15 minute ride for ten dollars. You know, um, we'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Yeah, I I'd never thought of it in, in uh, like uh, however Everest is. I'd never <laughs> worried about that particular image before. My my worries were more to do with you know is it going to be environmentally damaging and this sort of thing. Uh, that's where my sort of mm. brain sure. goes towards. Sure. In 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 the interest of uh, time, so we have the last five minutes. I have to ask you. So, um, just looking towards the future, uh, if you could paint a picture of what your ideal uh space to you know uh, earth defense system would look like uh in the next you know 50 100 years and then compare it to what you think we're going to get mm. um so if you want to cover all of the bases so i think we will i think we will get the survey of 140 meter asteroids done um whether it's as soon as Congress wanted or not, I mean, Congress didn't give enough money to make it happen on the timescale they wanted. So uh, it'll, it'll happen sometime in the next 10, 20-ish years. Um, at that point, the largest risk in a statistical sense comes from long-period comets. And long-period comets are very hard to find before they are making their, you know, coming in, coming in past Saturn and Jupiter. Um, we don't have a good sense of what is out in the, in the Oort cloud and the Oort cloud is super far away. And whenever we get together and, um, you know, at meetings and kind of, kind of kick it around, we've, we've yet to really come up with a great plan for how to survey what's out there. Um, maybe it will be, um, and, and part of the problem is that um, asteroid searches take advantage of, you know, moving objects. You image the same part of the sky over and over again. You see what moves, you know, and then you predict where it's going to be the next night. You go there. There it is. You, you fit the orbit. Um, things out in the Oort cloud move really, really slowly. And so you're forced either into these tiny, tiny images where you can we can see the motion because you're covering such a small patch of sky, uh, and you've blown it up so big mm. you can see things move. But then you've got to you've got to cover the whole sky like that, um, or you wait a really 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 long time, or both. And then being able to predict those coming into Earth again is a whole other 
whole nother kettle of wax. So ideally you'd figure out how to handle that problem. Um, mm -hmm. Realistically, what I think will happen is people are going to say, Ooh, yeah, that's a really hard problem. Um, and it's a low enough probability that we're just going to keep it in the stage of trying to figure out how to do it. Um, and instead, we're going to look at the smaller objects, like the ones that that impacted Siberia, go from 140 meters down to whatever size we think the atmosphere takes care of them. So um, that's a that's an that's an easier problem. We know how to solve that problem. It's the same problem we've been solving before, just with larger numbers of objects. Um, so uh, I think that'll that is I think a likelier a likelier place we take the next. Uh, surveys with these uh with the telescopes and then maybe testing some of these mitigation techniques other than the nuclear one um and uh <laughs> and kind of demonstrate those and you're not a fan of the nuclear one i i i think that once yeah i i think uh like a lot of folks i think we'd rather not get in the habit of just kind of using them you know <laughs> so testing some of these other things and some of these other things that have more promise for dual use with with science as well as planetary defense um so i, I think that would be great escaped sapiens